I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven, out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Father in heaven, we pray now with our Bibles open before us that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us. We thank you that you are God who still speaks. We pray now that you would open our hearts and eyes and ears to you, that we might receive your word. Apart from you, we can't, so help us. We pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and that you would soften us and satisfy us this morning with your covenant love that Christ purchased on the cross so that we would rejoice and be glad in you and endure to the end, holding on to what we have until Christ comes. So give us divine and supernatural strength this morning through natural and human instruments and human words and a human gathering for your glory. We thank you that you're here, Father, and we're leaning on you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're not a Christian, if you have not repented from your sins and trusted in Christ, I want to ask you a question first this morning. Have you ever wondered why Christians are so stubborn? Why Christians are so closed-minded? They hold so strongly that Jesus is the only way and that there is no other way besides Him. Why are Christians so closed-minded and stubborn these days? It doesn't make sense, you might think. That's a natural question. That's a good question to ask, especially in our um, culturally diverse um, nation here in America, and especially even in Southeast Los Angeles. This Bible passage that, we're, that we just read and are going to think about this morning answers that question. And so if you're not a Christian, we do this thing called expository preaching. And what we mean by expository preaching is that the words and goal of the passage controls the words and goal of the sermon. So the words and goal of what we just read will control this sermon and will answer that question of why Christians are so seemingly closed-minded and stubborn. But I also have a, Christian, a question for you Christians. Christian brothers and sisters, do you know anyone who you thought in your mind was certainly a strong Christian and was going to endure to the end? And eventually, as life went on, and as the trials of life came on, and as the, 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 the siren call of the world came on, they actually burnt out and ended up not following Jesus anymore? They let go of Jesus and let go of the things of God? Does anyone come to your mind when you think of that? If no one comes to your mind, you haven't been a Christian too long. Um, but you'll, you'll see that eventually. I mean, even in our own church, we had uh, just recently excommunicated one of our members as we prayed for sexual morality because at least at this point, 
she has seemingly let go of the things that Christ says in this text that you need to hold on to until He comes. There's one member in my former church, one of my former churches, who was on the song team, led in singing, and then his wife uh, tragically passed away. And in his grief, he started coming less to the church gatherings, eventually started dating and married um, someone from a Roman Catholic church, which we consider to be a false church on the whole because uh, their church officially condemns justification by faith alone. And he ended up leaving, leaving the church and joining a Roman Catholic church, seemingly making shipwreck of his faith. How do you know that you're going to make it? You might be strong today. You might be in a strong season of your Christian life. Maybe you have a strong 10 years that you're currently in or 20 years. How do you know you're going to make it to the end though? How do you know that you won't eventually give up? Do you just think, maybe I'm just so strong that I could take on the world, I can take on Satan, I can take on temptations from inside, so I'm going to be good, I'm good, I got this. How do you know that you as a Christian won't finally get peeled off of the church as Satan continues to kind of claw at the church and peel off as many members of the church as he can before the end time? How do you know that you'll hang on and hold on when when Satan and the world are trying to drag you to let go of Jesus? Do you ever feel weak and unsure that you're going to make it to the end? I mean, maybe in your darkest moments. You probably don't share these out loud. Maybe you do. I would encourage you to do that in confessing your sins to one another. But maybe in your darkest, most stubborn, sinful moments, does it ever freak you out how sinful you can actually get? And you're just like, oh my goodness, that's, that's me right now pastor of a church thinking these thoughts or, or unwilling to repent and humble myself before my spouse in a fight. What's wrong with me? I mean, if that continues, I certainly would let go of Jesus, wouldn't I? And I get scared. I start to feel unsure and even insecure about my life. If you feel that way and you're aware of your sin to that degree, Jesus has some strong encouragement for your soul this morning. But first, before we get there, let's go to the main command of this passage in verse 11. So look with me at verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11, it says this. Jesus says, I am coming soon, and here's the command. What's the command? In two words, what is it? Hold on. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. There's the main command. Hold on to what you have. What do you have? According to 3.8, they have, they're holding on to what? He does say they're holding on in verse 8, or verse 8, they're keeping something. They have kept Christ's word and have not denied his name. They're holding on to Christ's word. They're holding on to Christ's name. They're holding on to Jesus and the things of Jesus. And Jesus is commanding here, Christian church, hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. And so the way I've, what I've titled this message is cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. We could even call, this would be the main goal of the sermon this morning, cling to Christ in a crazy world and a crazy quote-unquote church. I'm not saying Bethany Baptist Church is a crazy church, though we can fall into delusional craziness from time to time. But if you just look at the churches that call themselves Christian today, aren't there some crazy churches out there that, that name the name of Christ? And that craziness gets into our own souls, our own church as well at times. But the call to you as an individual Christian is you need to cling to Christ in the midst of a crazy world and even crazy churches. 
Hold on to what you have. This is the theme of the book. This is one of the main themes of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 13, verse 10, um, the, the author writes, If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Some of you will be killed. Some of you will be thrown into prison. Some of you will be opposed viciously by non-Christians and even those who call themselves Christians. And you are to endure and be faithful. Revelation 14, 12, in a similar vein, this calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Hold on to God's commands and your faith in Jesus. Endure to the end. Cling to Christ in the midst of a crazy world and crazy churches. So the command to cling to Christ is simple enough, right? Very clear. It's not hard. You don't need to know Greek to just know clinging to Christ means keep holding to Jesus. Have you ever played a game as an adult with kids where you hold money in your hand and they have to peel off? They have to kind of open your hands slowly, you know, to grab. And you're playing with your kids and you're trying to hide it from them and you hold it and your kids have to try to, they start with your pinky, of course, your weakest finger, and they try to pry something out of your hands. It could be a coin, a toy, a note, a key, something. This is a picture of what's going on in the church. Here you are, you're trying to hold on to Christ, and Satan and the world and even Christians, people who call themselves Christians, even churches, in their compromise and craziness, they try to get you to, they try to peel your fingers off until you let go of Jesus, and you end up not enduring to the end, not being faithful not clinging to Christ. This pressure from the world led by the beast and the pressure of the church deceived by the beast tempts us as Christians to let go of what we have. So therefore, us Christians, you must not be stubborn or naive. You must not be overconfident. At the same time, you must maintain strong convictions and not be shaken. So let me apply this main command before we jump into our our main reasons to keep this command. Christian family, Bethany Baptist Church, I'm talking to the 80 members of Bethany Baptist Church now, hold on to the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. What is our faith? It's summarized in our church's statement of faith. So hold on to the church's confession of what we believe. It's not just a document that you look at once in a while or sign when you become a member of this church. It's a document that you regularly review to remember what we believe and strengthen your view of what we believe. That's what we're going over on Sunday nights. Come this Sunday night, we're going over the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, and the doctrine of baptism. It's not just a paper. It's something you're to review regularly for your own holding to Christ. Next, I would tell you as a member of this church to speak up at our members' meetings. Go to the members' meetings and speak up. Speak God's truth in love in the power of God's Spirit. I want to thank you for those members who came last week. It's important that you come to these meetings. If our church is going to be faithful and hold on to Christ, then you must come to the members' meetings, and you must speak into what's going on, or at least observe what's going on, so that if we go astray, you end up speaking. We don't want yes men and yes women at our members' meetings. We want thoughtful Christians who are coming with the Word and coming in the power of the Spirit to love each other and build up this church. So thank you for those who came. Third, here for the church family, we need to hold on to the gospel. And you know the best way to hold on to the gospel is to, do, is to keep explaining it, 
to other people, to keep enjoying the Lord, and to keep trusting in Christ and repenting of your own sins. That's why we do a prayer of confession every Sunday, to remember and remind ourselves and to actually confess the sins of this week so that you would freshly hold on to Jesus. You say it's repetitive, so are your three meals a day, aren't they? You say it's repetitive, so is your sleep. So we will continually confess our sins. We'll continually ask God for grace. We'll continually preach the gospel. We'll continually take communion every week because the, re- the repeated things are usually the most important things to build your life around. So hold to the gospel by being a faithful member here. Come on Sunday nights to pray with the church family. Get equipped by the, by the members of this church and the pastors of this church. If you're a Christian, the, the call to you, if you're going to hold on to Christ, is you need to keep reading your Bible yourself. Keep reading your Bible. Keep meditating on Scripture day and night. That's what the happy, blessed person does in Psalm 1, right? He meditates on Scripture day and night. Or to use Colossians 3.16 language, let the Word of Christ, what? Dwell in you richly. If you're going to cling to Christ, you must have the Word regularly dwelling in your heart and life, thinking about it. Children, I see some children here. Kids, even you, Red, I know you don't understand my words yet. But kids, you need to hold on to Jesus. You need to hold on to Jesus, especially in your teen years. We have kids on the cusp of adulthood. That's why we prayed for them in our pastoral prayer. And you will be tested. You will have independence that you need to have because you're growing as an adult, and yet you will be tested. You need to hold on to Jesus even when and if your parents deny Jesus, even if your church denies Jesus. You need to... Part ways with your church and even with your family if they deny Jesus, and you as a child need to hold on to Jesus. You don't need your parents' permission for that. Jesus calls you to hold on to Jesus, and Jesus is a greater authority than even parents. If you're not a Christian, our hope for you and your only hope is to hold on to Jesus and cling to Him even today. All right, let's get into the body of this, of this passage now. In this passage, Revelation 3, 7 through 13, Jesus gives you and and I, He gives us, gives me, five reasons why we should cling to Christ, okay? Five reasons to cling to Jesus, and if you understand these five reasons of clinging to Jesus, it will empower you to cling to Christ in the midst of a crazy world, a crazy church, and crazy churches, and even your own crazy thinking sometimes, all right? Five reasons that will empower you to cling to Christ. Let me give them to you in one word, and then I'll give it to you as we go through the, the outline. Five reasons. Opportunity, validation, safety, return, and reward. Okay, those are the one-word uh, one summaries. Opportunity, validation, safety, return, and reward. I said that's slower for you who are taking notes. Number one, first reason why you need to cling to Christ is because of the opportunity in front of you. What do I mean by that? Look at verses 7 and 8. Write to the angel of, of the church in Philadelphia, thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one closes, and who closes and no one opens. I have, look, he says, um, I know your works. Look, I have placed before you a What? an open door. So here's the first reason why you should cling to Christ in the midst of the craziness. Because Christ opens a door for you. 
Jesus opens an opportunity for you. He has the key of David, and he's the only one with the key to turn the key and open the door. And he says, little church, weak church, weak Christian, with Satan, the world, and your own sin trying to drag you down and pry your hands open of clinging to Christ, keep clinging because I have placed before you an opportunity, an open door. Now, who is this one who opens the door for us? Look at verse 7. The Holy One, that's Jesus. Jesus alone is holy. Revelation 4, 8, holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty. Only the Father is holy, but so is the Son, because the Father and the Son are one. One God, three persons, Christ Jesus is the Holy One. Not only is He the Holy One, the Almighty, look at verse 7 again, He's, not, he's the true one, it says. Thus is the Holy One, the true one. And Jesus Christ is not only the true one, He is the truth itself. He is the truth personified, right? In John chapter 14, verse 6, even in John 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you sent, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the holy one. He's the true one. And what does he have in his hand in verse 7? What does he have? The key of David. Who is David? Just some random man named David? No, who's David here? Who has the key, the key of David? Who is David? He's the what? The king of Israel, and Israel was the, the covenant community. Israel was the kingdom of God, and David was the king of the kingdom of God. And so if Jesus has the key of David, he has the key, the key of the kingdom because he's the king. He is the descendant of David. Indeed, the great, he's the, the root of David and also the stump that shoots out from David as David's descendant. David was the greatest king of Israel. God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would have a descendant sit on his throne, and Jesus is that descendant. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of God's people. He is the key of God's kingdom, the new universe to come. Jesus is the king, and he holds the keys. He holds the keys. And what is the key of David? The key of David is the keys of the kingdom. This is a reference an allusion to Isaiah 22, verse 20 through 22, verses 20 through 22. So listen to this passage in Isaiah 22. On that day, I will call for my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him. I will hand your authority over to him, and he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of David. Now listen to this. So there's this um, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and God is saying he's going to clothe him. And then he says this, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. That's interesting. Does that sound like what Jesus does in Revelation 3? Here, Eliakim Son of Hilkiah is given authority. He's given keys. So what he to keys now? It's not the keys of David here. It's the keys of the house of David, the keys of the dynasty, the keys of the kingship. And so whatever Eliakim opens is open, and no one else can close it. And whatever he closes, no one can open. And so one study Bible says this may indicate that Eliakim would function as prime minister because he wasn't technically a king. The key may have been a symbol of his authority. And so here, Jesus has that authority to the house of David. He has the key of David. And this, um, if you remember, who has the keys of the kingdom in the New Testament? Remember Jesus talked to Peter 
um, and the apostles, and they said, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And then he says, I give to you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth has been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. That's in Matthew 16. And then in Matthew 18, the church, when they excommunicate, they bind, whatever they bind has been bound in heaven, whatever they loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. And so the keys of the kingdom, Jesus gives them to Peter, and then Jesus gives it to the local church in Matthew 18. So Jesus is saying here, I have the keys of the kingdom, and I, whatever I open is open to you, whatever I close is closed to you, and I give these keys to the local church, to Bethany Baptist Church. And whatever you open is opened, and whatever you close is closed. As you excommunicate, as you take in new members, as you declare a statement of faith as a local church, you are exercising the keys that Jesus has, the key of David. So what is this key, or what is he opening it to? Or before we ask what he's opening the door to, what is the open door, let's ask this question. Why does he open the door for these Christians? Look at verse 8. I placed before you an open door that no one can close, and he gives you three reasons. Why? Because you have what? You have, you have little power, so that's the first reason. I open the door because you can't open it on your own strength. You can't open the door to the, to the kingdom. I can open it, so I open it for you. Secondly, you have kept my word. You've been faithful to me. So that's why I open the door for you, because you keep my word, the word of the gospel, the word of apostolic teaching. And then third, you have not denied my name. You are keeping to me. So for these three reasons, I'm opening the door for you, because I know your works. Christian, listen. Jesus knows your works. Jesus knows your thoughts. Bethany Baptist Church as a church family, Jesus knows our thoughts. He knows our works. He knows where our church is weak. He knows where our church is strong. He knows where our church is currently sinfully incomplete. He knows us, and he's encouraging us. He's saying, church family, Bethany Baptist Church, there's an open door in front of you. You can't open it. I opened it for you. You have little power. You've kept my word. You have not denied my name. Here's an open door. Walk through the door. There's an opportunity for you in the midst of this crazy world and crazy pressure. Hold on to me and walk through this door. What is the open door? What is the open door? In Colossians 4.3, um, Paul talks about a door for ministry, a door for gospelizing. That could be it. I don't think that's it, though. I think the open door is the open door for the kingdom. And you're saying, but we're already in the kingdom. Well, sort of, but is the kingdom fully consummated? Is the, full, is the kingdom fully consummated? Yes or no? No. You have been initially saved, but have you finally been saved yet? No, you haven't been finally saved. When Christ opens the door for the kingdom, it's not to conversion here, it's to the Christians to enter into final salvation, to enter into the new creation, the, the, the fully consummated kingdom when Christ returns. There's an open door for you to, to apprehend final salvation. You, need, you have an opportunity here to finally be saved. Hold on all the way to the end, and you'll finally be saved. Hold on all the way to the end, and Christ will open the door, or the, that open door of the kingdom is yours, is for you, and you will enter into the fully consummated kingdom. So that's the first reason. Why should you cling to Christ? Cling to Christ in a crazy world and in a crazy church because Jesus opens the door for you into the kingdom. Second reason why you need to cling to Christ. Cling to Christ because of verse 9. Let me read it to you. Note this. I will make those from, a synagogue, from the synagogue of Satan, those who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved who? You. 
So what's the second reason why you need to cling to Christ? Second reason is cling to Christ because Jesus will validate you. Jesus will validate you. Why do I need validation? Because there's this group called the synagogue of Satan. Look at that in verse 9. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying. Who is the synagogue of Satan? When you think of synagogue, you think of what religion? Jews. What do they claim to be? Jews. Now, I don't take, remember, I think of Revelation a lot more symbolically rather than literally here. So I don't think it's literal ethnic Jews necessarily. It might be, though. I mean, it could include them, but the point isn't that it's ethnic Jews. The point is the Jews were the true people of God, right, in the Old Covenant. They had, they were, their synagogues, they were meeting to read the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. They were reading that to say, we are the people of Yahweh, right? We are the true people. And yet Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. They claim to be Jews, but are not. They are lying. They claim that they're the true people of God. They're the true worshipers of Yahweh. In a new covenant context, they're the true church. You guys are the false church. You, Bethany Baptist Church, are a false church. You need to be part of, you could say, the Roman Catholic Church or the Church of the Latter-day Saints or the Church of whatever anyone calls a church. Or even wrongly, some Baptists might say that the Baptists are the only true church, which is not necessarily true, which isn't true, actually. There are Presbyterian churches that are part of the true church, meaning they preach the true gospel. But there are those who claim to be the true people of God, and they are lying. They're actually worshiping who? Satan. And they might even be the majority. So you look like an invalid Christian, and you look like an invalid church. You're not validated. Not in the world's eyes, not even in the, the, the Christian eyes of whatever culture you're part of. You are the, the, the fake Christians. We, the majority, are the real Christians. And yet Jesus says, note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be the true people of God, who claim to be Jews and are not, they're lying. I'll make them come and bow down at whose feet? At your feet, and they will know that I have loved who? Who? You, you will be validated in the end. You get an argument with another person who claims to be Christian, and they say that they're true Christianity and you're not, well, they're wrong. And Jesus told us about this. Don't be surprised by this. John 15, verses 18 to chapter 16, verse 4. Let me just read some of the verses here. In verse 18, if the world hates you, understand, Jesus says, that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things on, to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. When the counselor comes, who's the counselor? The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from my, the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You, Christians, will also testify. First, the 11 disciples there, but you too. You will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling, from letting go. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. 
But I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. You will be opposed. Persecution is not just a sword to your throat, though it is that. It's just being opposed by people who claim that they are the ones truly serving God. But you need to recognize that you are the people of the kingdom of God and that your status is secure and you will be validated in the end. They will come and bow down at your feet. They are the ones who are the synagogue of Satan. They are the ones who are damned because they reject Jesus as the Messiah. If you, re- if you reject Jesus as truly God, truly man, the Savior of the world who came into this world, died on the cross for sinners, and rose from the dead, if you reject Him or you add your works to receiving Him, you have a false, you reject Jesus and His work. And if you do that, you're damned. You might say you're serving Jesus. You might say you're a Christian. You might say you're a true Jew. You might say you're a true person of faith. You're a true spiritual person. But you're actually following Satan. If you don't have Jesus as he reveals himself in the word and hold to him alone, you are following Satan. And that's why God even promised all the way in the beginning with Abraham in Genesis, I will bless those who bless you and I will what? Curse those who what? Curse you. And that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. If you curse Christ, you're cursed because you curse the one who sent him, namely the Father. But then Jesus even extends it. He says, if they don't receive you, it's because they don't receive me. And if they don't receive me, it's because they don't know the Father who sent me. So when the, when the world curses the church, when the world curses a true gospel church, they're cursing Jesus and the Father. And therefore, they are what? Cursed. They're damned. They're condemned. But you, brothers and sisters, are blessed. You are exalted. You are kings and queens of the new earth to come. You are citizens of a true, heavenly, biblical, prophesied, eternal kingdom. You are loved by God himself. Jesus loves you. The world doesn't know that. They don't get it. They think Jesus loves them, and you're against Jesus, but Jesus loves you. You are on God's side. You are on the right side in a world that causes you to doubt your identity. We have this most recently by the famous theologian, Lady Gaga. Have you heard of her? The famous theologian Lady Gaga in her uh, concert in Las Vegas last month. Did you hear this in the news? What she said? Um, She said, speaking of um, our Vice President Mike Pence and really his wife, who's teaching at a Christian school, and that Christian school will not allow uh, homosexuality and the LGBT agenda to be tolerated in the school among the student life. So she's going back to serve that school, and supposedly there's this big uproar that she's doing the scandalous thing by being a Christian. So Lady Gaga said this in her recent concert. This is, a very, this is a theological statement that she made. You, Mike Pence, are wrong. You, she said you, speaking to Mike Pence. She didn't say Mike Pence. You are wrong. You are the worst representation of what it means to be a Christian. I am a Christian woman. And what I do know about Christianity is that we bear no prejudice and everybody is welcome. So you can take all that disgrace, Mr. Pence, and you can look yourself in the mirror and you'll find it right there. Now, this is not a political, I'm not being Republican or Democrat. That's not the point here. The point is true Christianity versus false Christianity. She is claiming that she is a true Christian and that true Christianity is not what Mike, uh, Mr. Pence, our vice president, and really his wife, who's working for a Christian school, in, in saying that LGBT um, inclinations and activities are disorderly and sinful, in saying that, she's saying that's not true Christianity. 
She's making a public claim, a theological claim, because Christianity bears no prejudice and everybody is welcome. What are we to do with a statement like that? What are we to do? I mean, if you're not a Christian and you haven't repented and trusted in Christ, you might even be thinking here this morning, you know what? All religions are basically the same. I was witnessing to a taxi driver a few weeks ago, an Uber driver, and he said this, all religions are basically the same. You just need to love and respect each other. You know where the problem comes in, PJ? He's talking to me. He says, it's when Christians and Muslims and other religions, it's when they start reading their holy book and they start interpreting it. That's where it gets all messed up. Because in their interpretations of the text, they start to say that they have the only right way and they start fighting with each other. But if they understood that all religions are basically the same, it's all about love and respect, and they're all saying the same thing, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that your way is the only way. Christians are so closed-minded. How can you say you have the right way and everyone else is wrong? If you push that too far, that's actually a threat to peace among humanity. If that's what you're thinking, I would comment by saying, well... So is the right way, the, is, oh, so if you're saying that there is not one way, but there are many ways, and that all religions are saying the same thing, is that the way? Because now you're saying that you're giving, you're not giving me, you're not being inclusive, you're giving me, a, I'm exclusive saying Jesus is the only way, you're saying no, all religions are the same, and you need to realize that, PJ, you're giving me a, a, a different way. You're saying it's not this way, it's this way. So is your way the way? that all religions are essentially the same? Is that the right way? Not only does that mute all the claims of these different religions, which actually truly disagree, you're saying they all agree. It's like saying, you know, when, when parents, when um, they're trying to get their kids to stop fighting, they say, no, no, you're not, you don't disagree. You guys agree. You guys agree. Just stop fighting. You agree already. It's like, no, we don't agree. Like, you can't just declare agreement when we don't agree. I just don't want to deal with the fight anymore. You just agree. You can't just paper over a real disagreement with the word agreement, and now all of a sudden it's real agreement. Oh, you could do that. And that, if that's your claim, you're saying the true way is to just label all religions in agreement. That's your religious view. But why is that religious view the true one? Because you're telling me to repent of my religious view and go to your religious view. But that's not, but that needs to be tested. You might be right, but you might be wrong. You're saying that you are exalting inclusivity, but you're actually being exclusive. And that's what Lady Gaga does as well, right? She says, um, everybody is welcome in Christianity. Is the vice president welcome? Is her wife welcome? I mean, you said everybody. You're saying that they're not Christian, and they're not truly Christian, and you're saying everybody is welcome. I don't know what that means. Would you mean everybody except those two? Inclusive of everyone except these two. We exclude these two. That's not inclusivism anymore, is it? In other words, brothers and sisters and non-Christian friends, Christian friends here who aren't Christian, nobody is exclu- no one is ultimately and comprehensively inclusive. All of you here, Christian and non-Christian, you are all exclusive. The only question is, are you excluding in the right way or the wrong way? Is your exclusion tied to the truth of reality or is it your imagination, and false. So if you're not a Christian, I just want to challenge you to think about your exclusivity because you are exclusive just as we are. We're just saying that Jesus is the truth. And so we'd encourage you to think about that. So Christian family, don't live for your approval ratings. 
Don't live for likes on your social media accounts. Don't live for the approval of others. Stop worrying about what others think about you. God accepts you and approves of you because you are united to Jesus, so you don't have to prove yourselves to others. Worry about clinging to Christ in the midst of craziness, and He will validate you in the end. So why should you cling to Christ in the, in the midst of craziness? Number one, because Jesus opens a door for you. Number two, because He will validate you. Number three, because Jesus keeps you from the test of judgment. Look at verse 8 again. Or I'm sorry, verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. So you have kept my word, Jesus is saying to the church, so I will keep you from the hour of testing. You've kept my word, you have not denied my name. You've kept my command to endure, which is what Christians do. Real Christians endure. Because you seem to be real Christians still, you're still enduring, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Every Christian endures to the end. That's what a true Christian does. They never lose their salvation. What does it mean that He will keep us from the hour of testing? Two questions here to answer. How does Jesus keep you from the hour of testing? And what is the test? How does Jesus keep us from the hour of testing? Look at verse 10. He says, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. How does he keep us? Now, some of our church family might believe this. I don't believe this is true, but we don't have to fight about this in this church. We can agree to disagree, and we will not paper over with the banner agreement because we don't agree. But some of you say what Jesus means here is that there's a pre-tribulational rapture. Before the seven-year tribulation, Jesus is going to keep you from the hour of testing because he's going to rapture the church, and he's going to keep you from the hour of testing because you won't be on the earth. That is one possible view. That's not my view. That's a possible view, and I tell you that just to encourage you that that is possible. What I think it means is that Jesus keeps you from the hour of testing while you're still in the world. You're still in the world, and why do I say that? I say that because uh, even Jesus said in John 17, 15, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Even there, Jesus is praying for protection for his people while they're in the world. Jesus doesn't protect you by taking you out of the world. Now, there is a rapture. That's the second coming, in my view. But, um, but Jesus protects you while you're still in the world. He preserves you in the world while, you are, um, while, while there is a testing on the world. So what is this test then? What is this test? I think this test is the test of the evil one deluding and deceiving the world to reject Jesus even further. And, the, and Christians don't get this test because they believe in Christ, so they just keep enduring. Now, where do I get this test? Let me read to you. You can turn there if you want, but I'm not going to wait for you because it's just for the sake of time. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you're quick enough, you could turn there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, listen to this. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, false signs, and false wonders. And with every wicked deception... Among those who are perishing in the world, among non-Christians, listen, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, listen to this, here's a test. For this reason, here's what I think the test is. For this reason, God sends, among, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that they will all be condemned. Those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. They didn't love the truth. They loved unrighteousness. 
So God sends a delusion. Righteously, in holy judgment, He sends a delusion on the world so that they will continue in their unbelief because they loved unrighteousness. They don't want the truth. Before you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit caused you to be born again. You didn't want the truth. You wanted the truth to serve your self-centered ends. And God will send this test. And if they fail this test, they will be damned. And it's actually a test of judgment. But God will not send this spirit of delusion among His people who endure and cling to Christ. So that's the point of chapter 3, verse 10 of Revelation. Why do you need to keep clinging to Christ? Because Christ will keep you from the test of delusion that is going to come on the whole world to test them in their unbelief. And you're saying, well, PJ, that's 2 Thessalonians. Well, 2 Thessalonians has to do with the end times, but if you want a verse from Revelation, let me give you Revelation 9, verses 18 to 21. In Revelation 9, there's this fire and smoke and judgment going all over the world, and then listen to this. They, they see these judgments of God, and listen to verse 20 of Revelation 9. The rest of the people who are not killed by these plagues... They did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. What is it talking about? God judges the world. God makes the truth obvious. He shows the the stupidity, foolishness, and destruction of sin. And even when He shows it, they still don't repent. They still don't repent. You make the intellectual case to them. They see it in their lives and the way it works. They, they search their feelings and they feel the emptiness. And they still don't repent because they are being tested in the delusion because they've rejected the Lord. And Jesus will keep you from that test because you keep to his word, because you cling to Christ when the world does not. And fake Christians, they say they cling to Christ, but they're not clinging to his actual word. So that's a a third reason why you need to cling to Christ in the midst of craziness. If you're not a Christian, I plead with you, do not be deceived. If you're saying, well, if I'm already a non-Christian, God's sending me a spirit of delusion, I'm done. I, I have no chance. No, you don't. You're right here right now. You're in this building. Why are you here? Why are you listening to my words right now? It's because God has brought you here. God has brought these sound waves to your eardrums so that you would hear the gospel. You don't have to die in your sins. You don't have to be deluded. If you will repent from your sins even right now and trust in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. God sent his son to die for your sins and rise from the dead. And he sent you here to hear the gospel so that even this morning, hearing my voice, you would hear God's voice, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. You don't need to be deluded and deceived if you would trust in him. That is the gospel. Christ died for sinners. He offers you freedom from delusion and deception. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You don't have to be in bondage anymore if you'll just trust in Christ and His truth. So cling to Christ in the midst of the craziness because Jesus opens a door for you, because Jesus will validate you in the end, and because Jesus keeps you from the delusion, the delusional testing that is on the world. Fourth reason why you need to cling to Christ is because Jesus is coming soon to get you. So the last one was security. This one is, uh, what was the one word? You guys have it there? Return. Okay, it's the return of Christ. He is coming soon to get you. That's what it says in verse 11. I am coming soon. 
Some people think Jesus is coming in judgment when he says, I'm coming soon, and he will come to judge. But when he says this to the church, he's not threatening judgment. He's saying, brothers and sisters, hold on. Keep clinging. Don't give up. You only got a little bit more to go before the finish line. I am coming soon. I'm coming soon. Life is a vapor. You're one week closer to death than you were last week. Before you know it, you will be on your deathbed. And I literally mean that. Before you know it, you will be on your deathbed. It is a vapor. And Christ is coming soon. You only need to hold on for a little bit longer. This refers to the second coming, I think. Jesus said in Revelation 22, 7, Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, those who hold on. Psalm 35, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes when? In the morning. You just got one more night, and then you'll make it to the end. When Jesus comes, we're going to meet him in the air, and we'll reign with him forever and ever. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17. Here's the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17. Here's what it says. For the Lord will himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, will be raptured with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Amen. The church has always prayed in every language the same word, Maranatha, which means what? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord. And so we sing, not today, but we probably should have sang the song. Now redemption long expected, see in solemn pomp appear. All his saints by man rejected, now shall meet him in the air. There it is. All his saints by man rejected. They're rejected. They're from the synagogue of Satan. But now we shall meet him in the air. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. See the day of God appear. Yea, amen, let all adore thee high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory. Claim the kingdom for thine own. O come quickly, O come quickly, O come quickly. Hallelujah, come, Lord, come. Jesus said, I am coming soon, so cling to me. Okay, so we cling to Christ because of the opportunity, we cling to Christ because of the validation, because of the security, because of His return, and lastly, we cling to Christ because of the reward, the reward you'll receive. Look at verses 11 and 12. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that what? There's three aspects to it. So that what? No one takes your crown. Okay, that's part one. There's three parts to it. Let's look at the reward. That's part one. Part two, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. That's part two. Part three. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So what's the reward? The crown, participation as the temple, and your team identity. Okay, three parts to your reward if you cling to Christ. Your crown, your participation, and your team. What do I mean by that? Let's start with the first one, your crown. Verse 11, hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Now, this is athletic imagery. It's not the crown of a king. It's the trophy. It's the trophy of a champion. If we're talking in um, basketball terms, we call it a ring. You get a championship ring. 
In, in Olympics, it's a gold medal. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your gold medal. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your championship ring. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your first place trophy. That's what Jesus is saying here. Hold on so that no one takes your victory. Professing Christians, there are professing Christians that Jesus is talking to, but he's also talking to not real professors, people who profess Christ but aren't real Christians. Non-Christians and fake Christians, they say that they hold on to Jesus, but they don't really hold on to Jesus, not functionally, not really, so their crown will be taken. I hate to use a particular person in this instance, but I, I don't know for sure. I mean, I don't know the person's heart. I haven't talked to her ever, and I haven't talked to her since she made the public statement, but let's just, again, take Lady Gaga as an example. Someone like her, not her necessarily, but someone like her, someone who might hold to the satanic teaching of the day, the mark of the beast, at least in America, is one of the marks of the beast, is, is being pro-LGBTQA plus agenda, like being for that agenda, Okay? LGBTQA+, for that group, that agenda that they have, if you are not pro that, if you're not supportive of the agenda, not loving the people who are made in God's image, of course you should love them and accept them as image bearers and as fellow humans. But we're talking about supporting that agenda and those desires. There are people who say, if you do that, you're not following Jesus because Jesus is a God of love and you're not loving like Christ would. Well, when you say that, if you say that, you're actually letting go of Christ by affirming those sins. And it could be any sins. It doesn't have to be those. I'm not picking on that. It could be the sins of racism. It could be the sins of, I mean, just in terms of socially, it could be the sins of, of life, the sanctity of human life from womb to tomb. It can be all kinds of issues. It can be the exclusivity of Christ. The point is, there are those who say they cling to Christ, but they don't really. They deny Him by denying parts of His Word. Jesus is not saying when he says someone can take your crown that you lose your salvation. If your crown gets taken, it's because you said you were a Christian, but you, know you weren't really a Christian. So that's your crown. That's part of your reward. You need to cling to Christ for your reward, but not only for the reward of uh, your crown, but your participation. Now, this is weird, and my kids asked me about this last night in our family devotion. Jesus says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. So one of my kids was like, God's going to make us a pillar? We've got some pillars right here. That are holding up this auditorium. So God's going to make me like a post? I'm just going to be there forever as a post? I mean, when I think of being made a pillar, I think of Lot's wife. Remember that? She's made a pillar of salt. It's like, oh, I don't want to be a pillar. Like, I, I, I want to be a human. You know, Jesus is not literally saying you're going to be made into a pillar. I put my kids at ease. No, you're not going to be literally made a pillar you are a human. But the point is the temple is made up. It's held up by pillars. And Jesus is going to make you part of his temple. You're going to participate in the temple. And the temple is the holy place that you honored as the place where you commune with God. It was a holy and sacred place. And you participated in worship and communion. So Jesus is saying, if you cling to me to the end, the one who conquers and doesn't cower like a coward, but conquers in courage, he will be made to participate in the new creation life, in the new temple, which is in the new earth, which is the new earth, okay? So you'll, be part, you'll have a part in the new earth. You'll participate in the new earth. So you get a crown, victory, you get participation, and lastly, you get your team. What do I mean your team? 
What is Jesus saying there about your team? He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. I'm going to write on him. What does it mean if God writes on you? That I'm saying your team. It's like God is putting a jersey on you. And it says, not Lakers or Rams for the Super Bowl today. It says, Lamb on it, or the name of Christ. You're either you're sealed with the seal of the Lamb, because there's only two. There's only two jerseys that, that you have in Revelation. You know what the other jersey is? It's on this side. The jersey is six, six, six. Revelation thirteen. It's called the mark of the beast. You either have beast, or you have Lamb. But everyone in this world has one of those two jerseys on. You're on one of those two teams. And the one who clings to the end, Christ will write on you the name of the Father, the name of the city, and Christ's name on you. You are part of His team. Those who have the mark of the beast are the ones who capitulate and cave in to the craziness of this world that they say they hold on to Jesus, but they've actually what? They've actually let go. But those who cling to Christ to the end, they are part of His team. They have His name. So you get the crown, you get participation in the new earth, and you're part of the team. So cling to Christ because of the final reward. That's what Christ is after here. So Jesus will reward you. Now, let's close by asking this question, just to close now, to wrap it all up. So, okay, why do we cling? Let me summarize here. We cling to Christ in the craziness because of the opportunity to enter the kingdom, the final kingdom, because Christ will validate us, because of the security that Christ will keep us from de- demonic deception, and Christ will return for us, and lastly, Christ will reward us. Now, what if we succumb to Satan in our lives and we give in to sin? What if we fail along the way in this cosmic war? War. Well, first of all, Christians answer this question out loud. Will you sin in this life? Yes, you will. We say that boldly because we say it truly. We don't say that happily, right? We say that with a little bit of grief that we're going to sin, but we will. We understand that we still have a battle here, even in our own souls. So we will fail. But unlike us, and even in our, the best of our Christian life, we will fail holding on at least at points in our lives. But Jesus never failed to keep the Father's word. Did he? He never did. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And yet, even though Jesus kept his word, his kingly crown was taken from him, and he was given a crown of thorns. He was given a crown of thorns. And even though his body was the temple, he was desecrated as the temple. He was destroyed as the temple so that you would be made a pillar in the temple of God. And not only, not only that, Christ is going to write His name on us and the Father's name, but what was the name written on Christ when He was on the cross? At least according to Isaiah 53, He was counted with the transgressors. He was labeled sinner, rebel. He never sinned, but He was labeled even by God on the cross, rebel, sinner, transgressor, so that God would write on you His name forever. Christ died for us to give us the crown, to give us the participation in the temple, and to give us 
the, the final reward of being on His team. And so, Hebrews 13, 24 summarizes this passage this way. Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that He might sanctify the people by His own blood. Let us go to Him outside the camp, bearing His disgrace, clinging to Christ. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the city that is to come. So, brothers and sisters, church family, cling to Jesus. Cling to Christ in the midst of the craziness in this world, in the churches, and even in your own soul. Why? If you don't cling to Christ now, you'll live with uncertainty. Am I really a Christian? You'll be living in doubt all the time. You'll be distracted or beat down by this world, and in the end, you won't be a conqueror. You'll be seen as the coward that you are as a professing Christian if you don't cling to Christ. But if you cling to Christ, despite all the pain and pleasures that try to peel you away from Christ, you'll find confidence from Christ. You'll be sure of your salvation, and you'll be a blessing to your neighbors and to your church family and even to the nations. So, brothers and sisters, in the face of opposition, in the face of distraction, even in the face of fellow quote-unquote Christians who would peel you away from Christ, I call you to cling to Christ. We're going to even sing this song, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast, He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Father, we pray that You would hold us fast. Lord Jesus, we ask that You would hold us fast. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would hold us fast. Because on our own strength, we're sitting ducks for Satan, the world, and the sin within our own lives in church. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name.